This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, farmers who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and farmers who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Alongside me, Matt Hour. Today we're chatting with Dr Kate Burke. Kate is the Managing Director at Think Agri. A highly experienced farm consultant, Kate founded Think Agri to offer the very best strategic advice and guidance to investors and family farmers alike. In this episode, you'll hear about Kate's passion for research and extension, the importance of both boots and suits in running a successful farm business, and what she thinks is the biggest challenge facing family farming structures today. Let's jump in. Welcome, Kate, and thanks for joining us on Beyond the Farm Gate. Thank you. Thanks very much, Matt and Annie, for having me. It's really exciting. So perhaps to kick us off, Kate, would you be able to tell us how your connection to agriculture began? I had the audacity to be born in the middle of cropping in late April. So, yeah, our our families had a farm at Elmore in north central Victoria for, well, 150 years, as a matter of fact, and grew up on the farm and spent a lot of time on the farm with Dad growing up, being the youngest of six, and the farm was the creche, really. So spending a lot of time on the farm growing up, did you know back then that being involved in agriculture was something that you wanted to stay involved in as you went through school and and after school? Yeah, I guess um, the first inkling of opportunities for careers in agriculture that wasn't farming itself came from chatting around this thing called an agricultural scientist. There was a man who grew up 30 or 40 k's down the road who was actually an agricultural scientist, a guy called Frank Nile, and he did all the original work on Avidex BW back in the day, so one of the first pre-emergent herbicides for controlling wild oats. So amongst our family and friendship circles, his career was a bit of a big deal and Dad used to show me the drum and say, well, you know, Frank invented this stuff. And then one day my grandmother was visiting. Mum was a Melbourne girl and Graham was up from Melbourne and we'd just purchased a new header. And I think I might have been about 10 or so at the time and I took Graham up the shed to show her the proud new purchase of DS110 PTO driven header from uh, Shearer at, at Manham in SA and Gran said oh you should be an agricultural scientist and I said what's that <laughs> I suppose the seed was sown then and like a lot of people my age who grew up in the 80s when farm aid was a big deal and the Bob Geldof campaign for helping people in Africa and the Ethiopian famine there was quite a few of us that were good at science that thought doing ag science was a way to go and save the world. So I guess they were the two driving factors to head off to uni and do ag science. And Kate, you touched on the 80s there. What was the view of Australian agriculture back then as a career path? Was it something that was favourable and it was sort of had a good outlook or is it you sort of looked upon as a minority? Uh, it's a good question. I think there was about 80 in our first year at La Trobe University and there probably would have been similar numbers over at the University of Melbourne. And then there was a Dookie Ag College, Wurrung Ag College. So numbers were pretty high 
going in. I think Glenn Ormiston also, and obviously then in SA, you know, you got the Roseworthies and Uni of Adelaide. So it was quite a popular thing to be doing, even though the industry had its ups and downs. So 1982 was you know, a really severe drought and interest rates were incredibly high. So having debt was a big deal and stressful. But despite all that, the seasons relative to, I guess, the last 20 years were favourable as a whole. So it wasn't looked down upon, I guess, at, at all. And I guess being a female, most of my cohort at school went off into traditional things like teaching, nursing, etc. I didn't want to be either of those because I think I've got oppositional defiance disorder and mum was a nurse and my sister was a teacher. So that crossed those two straight out. Kate, I'm curious. I've been involved over the last few years in our scholarship program and the numbers of females taking on ag science and related degrees is increasing every year. But back then when you were doing it, were you one of the only few females or was it still quite popular back then as well? It was pretty popular. I'm just trying to think. I reckon it would have been about 25% female, 75% male. Yeah, and I, I guess of our little friendship group that went through together and managed to pass in all four years, probably quarter were females. So certainly always male dominated. And I think even today, there's still that, even though there's more women going into ag and graduating from ag, I'm not surprised to hear your comments about the scholarship program because I think there still is a bit of a gender bias of boys not going off to do further study and perhaps just doing a farm apprenticeship or even just going straight home, which I think is actually a bit of a shame. Or conversely, there's still a strong trend where the female child doesn't actually get considered to be going home on the farm to be part of that family business. And so it's just assumed, well, they'll go off and do something else and become an agronomist or a banker or or whatever. And I think that's why I'm curious, because that's how it was in my family. So it's really great for me to see the increasing numbers of females involved. But tell me, Kate, when you finished uni, what did you then go and do? What was your first job? My first job was actually over in Horsham with the Department of Agriculture as a cereal chemist. So I worked in the wheat breeding program and it was a laboratory-based job. And jobs were actually pretty difficult to secure at the time because None of the state governments were particularly flush with cash. In fact, they were actually going broke. So I pretty much took a job that I, you know, whatever was on the table after a while. So that's how I started off. But I knew it was just a stepping stone for me. The lab was never going to satisfy, you know, my desires. So with that in mind, are you able to tell us about your decision to do a PhD and go on to become an ag consultant? Yeah, I... So, so the first job was, uh, as I said, as a serial research chemist. It involved publishing papers and lots of time doing laboratory studies and, and not much time outside in amongst farmers and talking to farmers or even out in the crops. My second job was in education. So I was a 24, 25-year-old teaching at an ag college without a teaching degree. 
So that was interesting. But it was great. It got me back into, I suppose, the, the field in, in a way because the Agricultural College Longrenon was associated with a working farm and I was you know, directly involved with the farm manager and helping them with their agronomic decisions as well as taking the students out into the field for some of our practical exercises. During that time, the situation within agricultural colleges changed and in Victoria it was known as the Victorian College of Agriculture and Horticulture and there were five different campuses and that got taken over by the University of Melbourne. And as an academic in that area, it was pretty obvious that you needed to have a PhD to be able to continue your career. So I sort of made that decision that if I'm going to stay in this academic gain, I need to further my education. So that was the motivation for starting the PhD. And Kate, with putting, the, I suppose, the two together, sort of the consultant bit and the PhD bit, I get the sense that you're very much a, a people person sort of wanting to get back in front of farmers and, and talking with farmers as opposed to all the science-based stuff. Did the two gel together nicely as a career path? Yeah, so I guess I always had in mind wanting to do what was known traditionally as extension, which was the people component and taking the learnings from research and helping farmers adopt those learnings. So that is my ideal career path. So I fell into research because that opportunity wasn't available early on. And I've always had my eye on that, I guess, extension and, and consulting prize. When the career opportunities in academia started to look a bit complicated, there was an opportunity to go and work with a, a really well-respected independent consultant who had you know, some of the, the best farming minds in their client base. They also did practical research. So it did gel in the end really well because we still did field-based practical research but I got to spend time with people and learn from them and and help them along the way. Kate you were consulting through some pretty tough years though and throughout the millennium drought are you able to tell us what that was like and what it was like in comparison to perhaps now the current run of better seasons that we've had? This could take a while I took a (laughs) long to ask answer a uh, yes or no question so um, buckle in for this one Um, (laughs) it's interesting so I started consulting in the year 2000 and we'd already had a couple of difficult years through a PhD phase there was 1997 which we know now was an El Nino year 1998 was a huge frost in October and most of the farmers of that era would remember the exact date. I, I think it was either the 26th, 27th or 28th of October and I bet you get in the comments of your podcast someone will put the exact date in. So by the time I started consulting, there was sort of a bit of a hint that, you know, this climate business is challenging and farming in general can be quite challenging. So 2000 wasn't a bad year. 2001 ended up quite a good year with uh, a really cool finish. And that's sort of when I learned about the value of a cool finish in terms of crop production and and crop finishing. And you don't need to get a hell of a lot of rain to still get a really good result if the temperature is okay. And then 2002 came and it was a a full-blown drought is pretty much what it was. And that's the first time I saw proper drought in a professional sense where you're actually out in the paddock with crops that aren't coming up or that die pretty young and making decisions about 
what to do in relation to weed control and helping people batten down the hatches in terms of their expenditure. And so it was a pretty steep learning curve, but I had some really good mentors, of course, with the company I worked with and other uh, mentors in the industry. And then you sort of think, you know, the last really bad drought was 1982, like widespread drought. So we sort of assumed that it would just bounce back. And in some areas it did in 2003, but there was a really strong heat period. Then 2004 was a difficult year. And again, there was a lot of heat a bit towards the end of the season. 2005 was okay for some, not too good for others. 2006 was another complete shocker. So it was difficult. Yeah, and there was a few more difficult seasons before we got to a really handy one in 2010, which was actually a bit too good because it was your classic IOD negative and La Nina year, which resulted in a lot of flooding and a lot of distress for people in low-lying areas. So I probably learned how to be resilient, I guess, and looking back now, I'm I think one of my passions is helping younger agronomists not make the same mistakes that I did and perhaps care for each other, care for themselves a bit better in as they're trying to help other people. And you hinted there, Kate, on the learnings from that decade and that I know I'm probably opening up a bit of a can of worms here, but do you think now, having come through that decade of millennium drought, that farmers or clients of yours are better positioned to deal with drought today, having gone through something like that? Yes and and no. Some manage that mental pressure a lot better and know that what they need to do to look after themselves to manage that mental pressure. I think it's innate in farming because you're so passionate about it that when it isn't fun, because it's not much fun if crops aren't growing well, that's been the beauty of these recent years is it's actually really good fun helping people grow really good crops and it's really good fun helping people make money and it's really good fun working with people who are happy. So when those things aren't happening, it's not that good fun and even as recent as a few dry months in this autumn and and early winter, people's sort of fight flight response was kicking in and as humans we're um, pretty simple biologically developed as one of my colleagues Fiona Robertson talks about in her book The Rules of Belonging that basically human brains are threat detection pattern making machines. So the moment it stops raining we sense a threat and we, we make a pattern between a lack of rain and the distress that we felt last time. It takes a lot to manage that better. I'm getting away from the, the D word. We don't like to, to concentrate too much on drought in the podcast and getting into something else that you've been working on, you being an author now. I was wondering if you could tell us about why you decided to write the book Crops, People, Money and You. I'll probably challenge you there on the the D word because I think we have to talk about it because it's actually not uh, something bad that happens once every quarter of a century now. it's We get low rainfall, you know, and, and technically defined drought conditions pretty regularly. So it's just another thing that happens that we manage. You know, we, we're part of a cyclical 
industry. So I think if we can normalise talking about drought the same way we normalise that we'll need to normalise talking about mental health, we'll actually have better business outcomes. So I'll just throw that one in there as a bit of a challenge. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and, and, and one of the reasons I wrote the book was along those lines because I, I could see patterns of things that people did really well in farming and the opportunities that were there that were getting clouded or drowned out by all the negative talk. And so I just wanted to put all those patterns together in one place so that people could see this message that agriculture is a a really profitable industry. Sure, it, it has cycles and there are some key fundamentals that lead to making the most of your water limited profit potential. There's a favorite chapter of mine within the book called uh, the boots and suits chapter it is. So it hits on some of the key learnings from your time in corporate agriculture which we haven't delved too deep into but maybe you can now but can you tell us about what boots can learn from suits and and vice versa? Yeah, well, I'll just put that in context, I guess. So after my my dozen years of of working in independent consulting, there was an opportunity to go to Melbourne and work with a um, corporate entity. And that corporate entity had actually been initially started by a family farmer, an accountant, an agronomist who went and had a conversation with a fund manager that they knew so you know, they, they sensed an opportunity with compulsory superannuation coming in and so they formed an asset management company and then worked with this fund manager to, to generate some capital and then you know, and they created a land trust and away they went. And in fact, that group has actually just had its 25th anniversary, which is pretty cool. It's been quite a sustainable model, that one. When I was working with them, I was quite shocked at, just the different ways we did business in the bush to the customs in in a more corporate environment and so just the formality of the business formality we're so trusting in the bush and quite informal and very numbers driven in the finance industry and I thought that yeah I, I just thought there was an opportunity after I left corporate land to join the two together. And that's where this concept of suits and boots came, that we there's things that suits are really good at and things that boots are really good at. So suits obviously being the, the more corporate um, side of things and, and boots being those in, in farmland. I guess the things that I think traditional rule-based family farms can learn from the corporate industries is a greater emphasis on process and risk management and the value of looking at your numbers more and even down to really simple things like just checking business P&Ls once a month to see how you're going against budget, having a budget for starters. So just really basic things and taking things like health and safety seriously and employment seriously. On the flip side to that, there's a lot of experience-based and generational-based things that those of us that have been involved in farming sort of all our lives take for granted like like we understand that it's cyclical in nature and you know we understand that there's not much point in quarterly reporting if you only have one income generating opportunity a year we understand that timing is everything and that the 
impact that the operation and the, the production side of things and the decisions around those, how much that has on the, the numbers outcome. We understand that the spreadsheets always don't pan out in, in the paddock because of the law of diminishing returns and that it's just more complex once once operations get, get bigger. So there's, there's those sort of, I guess there's a lot of intuition and the need to be flexible and agile that just happens quite unconsciously or subconsciously out in the paddock and in the farm office and farm shed. So if you've got a corporate entity that is new to farming and the people making the big decisions at the top don't have that technical appreciation and the difference that management on ground makes and what it takes to get things done, that can actually um, be a risk for, for corporate entities. But those that have that technical appreciation, they're the ones that are really, I guess, long-standing in the industry. And, yeah, they've got that combination of crops, people, money and you. I was just going to say on on the book itself, I just noticed reading it, it's written in a way which really common sense and, and practical, like you've sort of stripped it back. Like I, I get the sense you've stripped back the learnings of your career and you've just written it into the book how you would just speak it basically which uh, is something that sort of hit home with me I thought it was really easy to read and relate to has that been the feedback that you've got so far yeah fortunately yes which is terrific because that was the intention I guess I've always been and that's why I guess I've always been interested in extension and getting principles across in a non-complicated way because as scientists sometimes we can get caught up in in the detail and it's really important to get the practical bits out that what can make a difference on farm. So I've always liked using analogies, particularly sporting analogies, to, to get those points across. And it was really good fun writing them into a book. I couldn't agree more with you, Matt. And even for us relating to the suits and boots, since we started chatting to you, Kate, that's probably how I like to think now of Matt and I and that balance that we bring as well. So definitely relatable for me as well but what I'm really curious about and something that you briefly touched on is around that family farming structure what do you think the biggest challenges face those type of farmers in Australia over the next five to ten years? I think it's about coming to terms with where they're at and what their game plan is. It's 2021 and the business structures and the family dynamics and the way we do business now is different to the way we could do business 40 or 50 years ago. Yet sometimes when I go out and speak to people and talk to them about how their business is actually set up or what the family situation is, what succession looks like, it's so informal that it's it's still that game plan from before the Adelaide Crows even existed. And we've changed everything else. Like we're not going around with draft horses anymore. And, you know, we've got GPS. We're doing all the technical stuff, right? Sometimes we do have the sophisticated business structures because, you know, we've been um, advised that way. We've got some good advice on that. But the dynamic of how we run the business on the ground at home still really could be either autocratic or communication could be just completely non-existent. 
yet we're running a team and a workplace and you know we're trying to win a premiership without a game plan really well put kate and i think that's a great point to to round out on from the the chat today and i think you should be really happy with how you've distilled a, a, a long career in agriculture into learnings that I think anybody could pick the book up and, and get something out of it. But finally, and on the topic of boots, and there's certain boots that go with suits, but uh, we like <laughs> to ask all our guests, which brand of work boots do you like to wear when you're out in the paddock? Oh, that's a really interesting question and you're going to be surprised by this answer. I've got pretty dodgy feet, so I actually wear a pair of bushwalking boots. I wear a pair of canes that I bought to go on a bushwalk. You know, and I, I do about one bushwalk every five years. So to justify the fact that I spend a lot of money on a pair of expensive German footwear, I, I wear them in the paddock. So they're a pair of lace-up keen boots. We'll have to make a new column for that one. I think that's a new one. Absolutely. Yeah, I do like to you know, have an edge and be a little bit different. <laughs> I like conforming. No, thank you very much for joining us on Beyond the Farm Gate, Kate. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Kate. Now, before we finish today's episode, we have some sad news to share. Today's episode was Matt's final interview with us, and I wanted to take the time to thank him for all the work he's done on the show. Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure to work alongside you. Thanks, Annie. It's been a great experience and I wish you and the show all the best. And thanks also to our wonderful guests. And of course, thank you to our regular listeners for making the show possible. Now, even though we're sad that you're leaving, Beyond the Farm Gate will be continuing. I'm not going anywhere, so stay tuned. But until then, thanks again, Matt. We'll really miss you, but all the best for your new adventure. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert. And I'm Matt Howe, and we'll chat to you next time.